Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Good evening, good evening. Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. Why don't we uh, stand and begin in prayer? Through the prayers of our Holy Fathers, Lord Jesus Christ, our God, have mercy on us and save us. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. For those that are new here at the Institute of Catholic Culture, I want to welcome you. I'm Deacon Salvatino Carnazzo. I know we have a number of new faces here this evening because of our renowned speaker who is with us. And, uh, and we're very blessed to have Mr. Dale Alquist with us this evening. The Institute of Catholic Culture is dedicated to education dedicated to your education. I believe, and I think the people sitting to your right and left believe, and I hope you will agree, that we are in a crisis not only in our society, but in our church. Pope Benedict XVI was very clear. He said it is very evident that we have a crisis in our society. But if we want to heal the fabric of our society, we have to first heal the fabric of our church. And we are not going to heal the fabric of our church until we begin to know once again the great works of God that he has done in our midst for our forefathers. You remember in the book of Judges when the prophet Joshua died and all of that generation also passed away. The scriptures tell us that another generation arose who did not know the Lord or the great works he had done. That means within one generation, they did not even know about the crossing of the Red Sea. They didn't even know about the Exodus. They didn't even know about Mount Sinai and the law. Within one generation, and I am afraid that we are standing in a very similar situation. The statistics are beyond scary as to the survival of the church in the United States in its present form. And the only way we are going to resolve that problem is not by feeling good about ourselves. It's about doing something, about learning about the great works of God that have come before us, that we have received, the great gift of the church, the great gift of divine life that we have received so that we can give it on to others as God has first given it to us. That is the mission of the Institute of Catholic Culture. And we are working tirelessly to be able to do that through education in history, philosophy, theology, sacred scripture, catechetics, politics, literature as we, st as we deal with tonight. All to come to know better the Lord Jesus Christ that we might love him more deeply. Our speaker this evening, I don't even think I need to introduce him to you, but I will do so. Our speaker this evening, uh, Dale Alquist, received his Bachelor's of Arts from Carleton College in Northfield, Minnesota, and a Master's from Hamline University in St. Paul, Minnesota. He's from Minnesota, of course. He said the high the other day, what was that, Dale? Eight below? <laughs> Lord have mercy. He is president of the American Chesterton Society, creator and host of the EWTN series G.K. Chesterton, the Apostle of Common Sense and publisher of Gilbert Magazine. He is the author of three books on Chesterton and has given over 400 lectures at major colleges and universities and other venues including Yale, Columbia, Cornell, Notre Dame, Oxford, and the House of Lords in London. I hope you'll be adding Institute of Catholic Culture to that, Dale. He is a fellow at the Veritas Institute in Oklahoma. Mr. Alquist is also the co-founder of the Chesterton Academy, a new high school in Minneapolis, Minnesota, that is centered on Chesterton's ideas of integrated learning. He and his wife have six children, and I am very pleased to welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture for the first, but I pray not the last time, Mr. Dale Alquist.
Any questions? <laughs> well, I have to tell you that I, I left my heart in San Francisco, and I left my talk in Minneapolis. <laughs> but uh, don't try to breathe a sigh of relief or uh, start rejoicing that you're going to somehow avoid pain tonight and your deserved suffering, because I still have plenty of material here. <laughs> And we'll be just fine. And uh, Deacon told me that he would start giving me a signal after about three hours. So, <laughs> does everybody have something to drink? <laughs> when G.K. Chesterton was making his decision to become Catholic, he wrote a letter to his mother. Every time he had something major in his life, he wrote a letter to his mother. In fact, when he was deciding that he was going to get married, he wrote a letter to his mother. His mother was sitting across the table from him <laughs> while he was writing the letter. In fact, in the letter he said, you are sitting across the table from me as I write this. But he wrote a letter to his mother because it was a very major decision he was making to become Catholic. And he had to explain to her why he was doing it. And he he said, I am convinced that the fight for the family and the free citizen and everything decent must now be waged by the one fighting form of Christianity. That's what he called the Catholic Church, the one fighting form of Christianity. And he said that the fight for the family, for the free citizen, and for everything decent was only going to be waged by the Catholic Church. And that's why he decided to join that army. Chester was defending the family because he saw the family under attack. He was defending the free citizen because he saw that the free citizen was under attack. And he was defending just basic decency and morality because he saw that that was under attack. And he called his conversion the chief event of his life. And the place where he describes it as the chief event of his life is in his introduction to The Everlasting Man. And The Everlasting Man is a very important book to me. Personally, it's the first Chesterton book I read. I don't recommend that you start with that book. <laughs> if you haven't read any Chesterton, don't start with that book. It'll mess you up. <laughs> Look at me. And some of you know this, but I started reading that book, my first Chesterton book, uh, just like anybody else, um, on my honeymoon. <laughs> I've been married to my wife as long as I've been married to G.K. Chesterton. And the three of us get along pretty well. And like any good Baptist, I was honeymooning in Rome. And uh, my wife, who I brought with me on the honeymoon, <laughs> she was reading Les Miserables. <laughs> and she was, she was weeping openly when, when Fantine dies. I hope I didn't give that away for anybody. <laughs> but she, she dies. And... Uh, She's weeping and then she's laughing because she's weeping and because it's our honeymoon. Whereas I'm reading The Everlasting Man and not understanding anything. <laughs> but realizing that I have just encountered a life-changing writer. I had no idea how life-changing. I had no idea what I had just gotten myself into. Which is what happens when you get married. <laughs> we were in Rome on our honeymoon the day that Pope John Paul II was shot. I was a suspect. Because <laughs> I was Baptist. My alibi was that I was reading The Everlasting Man. <laughs> and Chesterton had this effect on me that, that I knew I had, for the first time in my life, encountered a complete thinker. 
someone who really did have an answer for everything because he was addressing all sides and all angles from which the truth can be attacked. And uh, he, the everlasting man, he, he talks about mythology and history and philosophy and theology and science and things that go by the name of science that aren't science and literature. It was all there. Everything was there. And Chesterton put it all together in the most amazing and uh, seamless garment that I've ever encountered. One of my reactions, and I had many as I read it, but one of them was, was anger. Anger that I had been given a degree from a reputable liberal arts college without ever having heard the name Chesterton. And the more I discovered about this writer, I realized what a fraud my education was. And Chesterton, as, as Deacon was saying, the, the Israelites within the first generation forgot about the Red Sea. G.K. Chesterton was one of the most popular writers in the world during his lifetime. When he came to America on two speaking tours, it was front page news in every city that he visited. In, including, he, he was in this area as well on his, on his tour. Spoke at Trinity College. And everyone in the world knew who Chesterton was. He, he was taught in all the universities and schools. Everyone, everyone knew who he was. He was one of the great men of letters. And within a generation of his death, people had forgotten who he was. Until by the time I was uh, reading English literature, he wasn't even mentioned anymore. And he's, you know, he's a master essayist, probably one of the greatest essayists ever to pick up a pen in the English language. And he's got epic poetry to go along with it, great books on all different subjects. He, I think he's intimidating for a lot of people because he's simply too big to get a hold of. And of course, he had the, uh, the physical presence that matched too big to get a hold of. <laughs> Some of you probably know some of the stories about his great size, he was uh, about six foot four and 300 pounds. People were, at his time, were actually more uh, struck and impressed by his height than by his girth because the first thing that happened when he walked into the room is that they, they looked up at him and then, then they realized that he had filled the entire room. <laughs> There's the great story of him... Uh, trying to get out of a cab, and uh, the, the cab driver saying, perhaps if you get out sideways, Mr. Chesterton, and he said, I have no sideways. <laughs> during, during World War I, he's walking down a London sidewalk, and an old woman comes up to him and says, young man, why aren't you out at the front? And he says, madam, if you stand on this side, you'll see that I am out at the front. <laughs> Chesterton said it's impossible to be fat in secret. <laughs> but with, uh, with his great size came great joy and great jolliness, which is why he said he was the jolliest man in all of England, because there's such a lot of me having a good time. <laughs> and a man of, of great uh, humility as well, which is uh, a wonderful matching irony to his great size. He knew how to make himself small, which is why he always had such a great sense of wonder and could enjoy everything. And that's, that's how you do thankfulness, is by making yourself small. It's a beautiful irony about G.K. Chesterton, is that he was able to do that. Some of you may have heard the good news that was just announced within the last couple of months, that the Bishop of Northampton, England, has appointed a priest to begin the investigation into Chesterton's possible cause for sainthood. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's, this is truly a great thrill. Uh, you know, back when I was a Baptist and I was starting to fall in love with Chesterton and uh, was with you know, a group of, of people who were also very interested in Chesterton, all of whom were Catholic, and there weren't many of us back in those days. And the idea was first floated. Someone had suggested at a very small Chesterton conference up in Canada, a speaker from England named J.J. Scarsbuck said that he thought that there should be, uh, a ser seriously considered, a, 
a movement for Chesterton's cause. And so there was a little ripple through the Chesterton world. Uh, you know, all 24 of us started talking about it. <laughs> and um, all of the Catholics were saying, oh, this is a bad idea. The Catholics were saying it was a bad idea. Because, you know, Chesterton's so, so ecumenical, and he, he appeals to such a, a wide variety of people. If we, you know, he appeals to people like Dale here. <laughs> and um, if he were to be canonized, that would make him just exclusively Catholic, and, and uh, that would kind of limit his appeal. And I said, are, are you kidding? You're, you're kidding, right? I mean, our idea of saints is that they're all barefoot 14-year-old girls. <laughs> the idea of a 300-pound cigar-smoking journalist <laughs> wearing a halo <laughs> is really compelling. <laughs> and if you canonize Chesterton, I'll become Catholic. <laughs> and no one took the bait. <laughs> I had to become Catholic through the normal channels. <laughs> and to add to the irony, when I first time went to England in 2002 and requested a, a meeting with the Bishop of Northampton to find out what the status of Chesterton's cause was, found out that there was no status, that absolutely nothing had been done, and he still invited me to meet with him, and I was the first point of contact to tell him why he should appoint an investigator. And, uh, and you see how backwards that is? I said I'd become Catholic if they canonized Chesterton, and then I became Catholic, and then... <laughs> and so um, it's, it's really thrilling to, uh, to see this happen. And we have some prayer cards in the back, and please, uh, please take one, and, and please use that intercessory prayer. And, and then let us know what happens. I know there are people here tonight who are converts because they have read G.K. Chesterton. That Chesterton somehow played a role in their conversion or, in some cases, their return to the church, their, their reconversion. Just how, how about showing me who you are? I know some of you are out there. Look at that. That's great. That's great. And if I, don't have your, if I don't have your name, please come and give it to me because I want to put you on the list. <laughs> All right. The list is good. We're going to start another list tonight, too, uh, a list that we're going to continue tomorrow. We, there used to be a Washington, D.C. Chesterton Society, but they were, they, well, no, there isn't. When you say there still is, there isn't. It's now the Northern Virginia Chesterton Society, and they meet in Sterling. But what we want to do is reignite the Washington, D.C. Chesterton Society. So folks who are close to D.C. who want to be involved in a local Chesterton Society, we're going to have a little sign-up sheet back there. And a local Chesterton Society is a fun time to read Chesterton's books with a group of people who will be as bewildered as you are <laughs> by the books. And then I also would like to invite you all to just join the American Chesterton Society and get Gilbert Magazine, which is the best magazine in the world. <laughs> so, the God in the Cave. Chesterton begins The Everlasting Man. Uh, well, I want to say two other things about The Everlasting Man and why it's so important. Some of you know this story, too. This is the book that brought C.S. Lewis into Christianity. C.S. Lewis was an atheist until he read The Everlasting Man. And it was the book that absolutely turned his life around. And he said it was the first reasonable defense of Christianity that he ever read. He also said in his, uh, in his memoir, Surprised by Joy, words to the effect that a young man who's serious about his atheism cannot be too careful about what he reads. <laughs> And then the other, uh, the other important thing about The Everlasting Man is that many people consider this to be Chesterton's masterpiece, along with Orthodoxy and his book on St. Thomas Aquinas and his book on St. Francis of Assisi <laughs> and his epic poem, The Battle of the White Horse and the Father Brown stories and The Man Who Was Thursday. 
and any collection of his essays. <laughs> but honestly, it's, it's, it is the book where he puts it all together. And he begins the book by explaining that the critics of Christianity really have, have no real perspective to their doubts. They doubt Christianity, but he says their criticism has taken a curious tone, that of random and illiterate heckling. He says they'll complain that the churches are empty without going there to find out if they are empty or which of them are empty. And they'll condemn the church for condemning sin and then turn around and claim that since the world has become so evil and hopeless, it proves that the church is wrong. Chesterton says, when the world goes wrong, it proves rather that the church is right. The church is justified not because her children do not sin, but because they do. But he sees that the main problem with the critics of the church is that they're simply too close to it. They're too close to the church to really understand what it is they're criticizing. They're just reacting to the part of the church that is closest to them. And so what he does with the book and what his, what his scheme is, is to get us all to stand back far enough and far away enough from the church so that we see the church as a whole. And then we can see what a truly strange thing it is and what a truly strange story the whole Christian faith is. If we, if we back up far enough, it's like a boy going far enough away to see that the giant is actually a giant. And uh, as some of you may know, the book was actually written as a rebuttal to H.G. Wells' book, The Outline of History. And he takes on his, his two biggest points of contention with H.G. Wells is that H.G. Wells treats man as simply another animal and treats Jesus as simply another man. And so his two points of attack in the book are first on the creature called man and then the second point on the man called Christ. That first of all, man is something different from every other creature. And secondly, that Christ is something different from every other man. And he begins with the caveman. He begins with the man in the cave. And what do we know about the man in the cave? Almost nothing. The reason why we use the term prehistoric is because we don't know anything about what happened before history. History is the recorded events of mankind. So everything before the recorded events is covered with a veil because there are no records. That's why it's prehistoric. And Chesterton is not only amused but amazed and sometimes annoyed by what professors will say about prehistoric man because it's all just pure speculation they don't know what they're talking about, and there's no way to prove it or disprove what they're saying. And he says sometimes it's more dangerous to get between the professor and his bone than to get between the dog and his bone. <laughs> but there is one thing we do know about the man in the cave, one indisputable and the only indisputable thing we know about the man in the cave. He was an artist. We have his pictures which are still available for viewing. The one thing we know about man is that he was an artist. And his art already indicates that he does something completely different from what any, anything that any animal can do or has ever done. He, he has this line in The Everlasting Man that if you were reading a novel about the Neanderthal man or the caveman, and you can just picture it and... Dirk Dagmar's sparks were flying in his head as he looked at his woman. And then he went over to the wall and painted a picture. Because that's all we know that he did, for sure. <laughs> There's no evidence that he hit her over the head with a club and dragged her by the hair. Or anything like that. And, and a lot of the whole questions about evolution, you know, Chester insists that the whole origin of, of the universe, the origin of life, the origin of man, they're all shrouded in mystery. We, we can't possibly imagine how the world was created any more than we could create one ourselves. And he says the real problem with evolution, he says, is that it's mistaken for an explanation. 
It has the fatal quality of leaving on many minds the impression that they understand it, just as many of them are under the illusion that they have read the origin of the species. <laughs> and so the one thing we know is that the creature called man was an artist. He says art is the signature of man. When history begins, in other words, when we recorded history, because that's what history is, is what's recorded, he says the curtain goes up on a play that is already in progress. What we know about early civilization is that it was civilized. And that's the earliest record we have. Is of, it was of a very highly civilized ancient world. And the only thing we know about man from the ancient world is the same thing that we know now, is how different we are from every other creature. The simplest truth about man, he says, is that he's a very strange being, almost in the sense of being a stranger on this earth. He has much more of the external appearance of one bringing alien habits from another land than a mere growth of this one. He has an unfair advantage and unfair disadvantage. He cannot sleep in his own skin. He cannot even trust his own instincts. He's at once a creator, moving miraculous hands and fingers, and yet he's kind of a cripple because he's wrapped in artificial bandages called clothes, propped on artificial crutches called furniture. His mind has the same doubtful liberties and the same wild limitations. Alone among all the animals, he's shaken with the beautiful madness called laughter. Alone among the animals, he blushes with the mystery of shame. Whether we praise these things as natural to man or abuse them as artificial in nature, they remain in the same sense unique. And this is realized by the whole popular instinct that we call religion. And when our paleontologists and our, our scientists of early development try to explain religion, they always try simply to explain it away. They try to use our longing for God as evidence that there is no God, as if hunger were evidence that there's no food. And the other point is that religion is as old as civilization. And he says, a, you know, he says, a politician once told me in debate that I was resisting modern reforms exactly the way some ancient priest probably resisted the discovery of the wheel. I replied it was far more likely that the ancient priest was the one who discovered the wheel. It's overwhelmingly probable that the ancient priest discovered the art of writing. And he speculates on these ancient tribes, and he, he, he says the evidence really is to suggest that individual tribes were monotheistic. They always, it was natural to believe in one god. Then as the tribes combined, they brought their gods together and they became polytheistic. And with polytheism, mythology naturally arises. And uh, there's never a theology that's connected with mythology. Mythology is simply a poetic way of trying to describe the gods and describe the powers beyond us. And their heavens became populated with many gods, and their gods turned out to be as frail as themselves. But mythology is all about the imagination, and the images that fill the mind. And they're infinitely suggestive. But we always know what they're suggesting until some scholar tries to explain it to us. And they're always about the ache for the eternal, especially the ache for eternal life. And the ancient myths may be heroic, but they are ultimately hopeless. Orpheus can never bring Eurydice back from the dead. They simply are not able to answer the riddles that they raise. But they give a voice to those riddles. They give a voice even to their own hopelessness. And there was one tribe among the ancient tribes that did not fall in for polytheism, that, that jealously guarded their one God. And that was the Jews. And while other ancient historians try to portray the Jews as something narrow, Chesterton says that that one God turned out to be as narrow as the universe. And the Jews protected and preserved the greatest truth of the ancient times as they carried God in a box with them across the desert. And Chesterton says, the world, the world owes God to the Jews. But of course, Chesterton was anti-Semitic. <laughs> no, he wasn't. But if you ever hear someone say that he was, you tell them, no, he wasn't. 
That's how you answer that, okay? <laughs> and then you will have just done an exchange of a false assertion with a fact, okay? That's how you do that. But there are people who have tried to uh, make the assertion that Chesterton was anti-Semitic. He's the one who says the world owes God to the Jews. Not something that someone who hates the Jews would say. Uh, but then, of course, with every ancient civilization, what you see is as they progress, as they become very civilized, decay sets in. Chesterton says men do not grow tired of evil, they grow tired of good. They become weary of joy. They stop worshiping God, they start worshiping idols which are their own bad imitations of God, and they become as wooden as the things they worship. They start worshiping nature and become unnatural. They start worshiping sex and become perverted. They start worshiping man and become unmanly. The most ignorant of humanity know by the very look of earth that they have forgotten heaven. And then something marvelous happens in history. Something historical, something that can be traced to a certain time and place, an event in Bethlehem. And it also happens in a cave. Many of you know that uh, in spite of our wonderful Christmas cards that portray Joseph and Mary in a comfortable barn, well lit, soft lighting, <laughs> the stables in the Holy Land were caves. They were carved out of the earth. Those were the shelters for animals. And so the manger was in a cave. And so just as man's story begins, begins in a cave with the caveman, when God comes to earth, Chester says he actually comes below the earth. Traditional uh, birthplace of, of Christ is below the surface of the earth. In fact, it's, it's reproduced over at the Franciscan Monastery where I'm staying, by the way. And uh, he says, Bethlehem is a place where extremes meet. It's where heaven meets earth. God comes to make a home in the world with a family that's homeless. And it's also the place where philosophy and theology meet for the first time. Chester makes the great case that the Greeks and then the Romans who laid the foundation for philosophy and the rules of rhetoric and logic that we still use, and that were used to build Western civilization, had no theology. And the Jews, who had uh, a very strong theology, had no philosophy. And the two came together in Bethlehem and in Christ. And 33 years later, at the foot of the cross, it was those civilizations who were intersecting. Jesus, king of the Jews, was inscribed in three languages, right? Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. And the kings and the shepherds who, uh, who knelt before the baby Jesus represent the different lands, the different cultures. I'm going to be talking tomorrow at the Catholic Information Center about shepherds and kings. So I'm not going to say anything about that right now. <laughs> but the point is that the coming of Christ changes everything. History changes completely at that moment. And you can see the split in history right there. Everything changes. And that's Chesterton's great point. The man called Christ does not come as, as a great teacher he does not come uh, as a conquering king. He comes as a man speaking in riddles and as one who has a mission and that mission is to die. And the things that he says to people sounded as strange when he said them as they sound today when we hear them. And he says there must surely be something very mysterious but many-sided about Christ because so many smaller Christs have been carved out of him. And he made the greatest claim of all, the claim to be God. Muhammad did not claim to be God. Buddha did not claim to be God. Even Joseph Smith did not claim to be God. But he came the closest of the three. 
And the story gets stranger still. It's, it's, the, it's the strangest story in the world, Chesterton says, that the world could not save itself as it stood at the foot of the cross, and that the whole wisdom of the world turned to folly, and the cross itself stands at the center of history. Chesterton says the, the cross is the crux of the matter. If there's an opportunity for a pun, Chesterton will use it. And he, he goes on to say that, that this central dogma of the, of the Christian faith, the dogma that God died, that God was for one mysterious moment forsaken of God, that God sacrificed himself to himself, is more mysterious than anything else, even more mysterious than the mystery of creation. And those who object to this dogma, object not because it's a a bad dogma, but because it's too good to be true. It's too good to be true because it fills even God with more freedom than we will allow God. And they reject that freedom that fills the Christian creed. The dogma that gives man so much freedom as to allow him to fall and that gives God so much freedom as to allow him to die. They reject the truth because the truth will set them free. But the gospel, of course, the gospel story does not end with God's death. It ends with the most startling episode of all. An empty grave. And God again walking in a garden, just as he walked on the first day of creation. The gospel story does not end with an ending, it ends with a beginning. The beginning of the Catholic Church. Chesterton says, Christianity appeared as a church with everything that is implied in a church and much that is disliked in a church. It didn't begin as an ethical movement or a school of idealists. It began as a church. It had a doctrine. It had a discipline. It had sacraments. It had rituals. It admitted people and it expelled people. It affirmed dogma with authority and rejected false teaching the same way. It did everything it does now. It did what no other religion had done. It met the mythological search for romance by being a story, and it met the philosophical search for truth by being a true story. And here's the other great point Chesterton makes. Christianity did what paganism could not do. It reconciled the two lobes of the brain, the one that dreams and the one that calculates the one that loves and the one that laughs, the one that is detached and the one that is truly passionate. And Chesterton himself is one of the few writers who can do the same thing, who combines the two lobes of the brain. In a world of specialists, in a world of extremists, in a world that gets very narrow very quickly, either with something too heady to understand or too passionate to even allow for good taste. Chesterton combines the two lobes of the brain and he says that's what sanity is. It's a matter of keeping comedy in your head and tragedy in your heart at the same time. That balance. And it's all because of a creed. A creed that we stand up and state we believe. And he says the creed's like a key. And a key is first of all a thing with a shape. It's a shape that can't be changed. If your key changes its shape, it doesn't work anymore. You're not happy when you get home to unlock your door and you find that your key has evolved. <laughs> it may be an arbitrary shape. Yeah? So is the truth. The truth's arbitrary. It's not a matter of argument. It either works or it doesn't. And it's futile to, uh, to say we're going to reconstruct it on pure principles or we're going to make it more beautiful or more practical or more simple. Well, a simple key would be a crowbar. <laughs> but when people complain that religion's too complicated with a the theology, they forget that the truth is complicated, the world is complicated. It's full of secrets, of things that are unfathomable of strange mental diseases and dangers in all directions. And if we faced all these things, Sheshwin says, with only platitudes and simplicity about peace and bow, wow, woof, woof, well, 
it wouldn't have had the faintest effect on the lunatic asylum that is the world. The key may seem complex, but there's one thing about it that's simple. It opens the door. It opens the door to eternal life. And the soul of Christendom, says Chesterton, is common sense. It's a truth that we all recognize to be true. We just simply have to stand up and state it and make it as clear as possible and state it with as much love as possible. Christianity has done something more than just survive. It has defeated its enemies by following the example of Christ. Not just by saying the right thing or doing the right thing, but, but by returning to life after having been defeated. Chesterton has this chapter in The Everlasting Man called The Five Deaths of the Faith. He says there have been several times throughout history when Christianity seemed to be just, just dead. It was gone. It was over. And yet, it came back. In fact, he says it's died many times and risen again because it has a God who knew his way out of the grave. Thank you very much for your kind attention. Thank you very much. He says he'll stay for as long as you want for questions. I'm not going to do that to him. Okay? <laughs> He'll never make it home. Okay. Yes? The subject is G.K. Chesterton, so that means... Anything. Oh, it's free game for you tonight. We're going to give you the whole thing. So the thing. subject okay. is G.K. Okay. Chesterton. Okay, all right. All right. For someone who's never read any of his writings, what's the best book to start with? That's the question I used to hate. Because I, every time I recommended a book... I was always thinking it would be better to read this book before that book. But then I wrote a book. <laughs> if you haven't read any Chesterton, you should start with one of the two introductory books that I, that I wrote because it really does help to have the primer to, to just get used to his style of writing, to what he's writing about. So The Apostle of Common Sense is an overview of his most important books. And I quote heavily from, from Chesterton. There's a chapter on the everlasting man which will sound suspiciously like some of the things I said tonight. <laughs> and then the Common Sense 101, Lessons from G.K. Chesterton. And that's Chesterton by theme, and uh, also a very good introduction to Chesterton. And, uh, start, and that also has a bibliography with an overview of his other books. So they're, they're really good ways to start with Chesterton. And if you want to read pure Chesterton, get a book of essays to start with. All right? You mentioned that he... Uh that Mr. Chesterton debated the origin of the species. In reality, did Charles Darwin and Chesterton ever have a debate? Or was there any writing about the two? Well, Charles Darwin, unfortunately, died before Chesterton was there to debate him. Uh, so they never had a debate. But he did debate Clarence Darrow. And he debated him in New York City. And uh, over 4,000 people attended the debate. And you all know about the Scopes trial, where Clarence Darrow used uh, poor William Jennings Bryan to mop up the floor. What you never hear about is Chesterton annihilating Clarence Darrow in New York City. But you can read about it in The Complete Thinker. It's the, it's the appendix to the book I wrote uh, on The Complete Thinker, and Chesterton just, just destroyed Clarence Darrow uh, in, in that debate. And... Uh, he, you know, he just, he really took apart the fallacies. He, Chesterton had no objection to the concept of evolution. What he, what he objected to was, as I said in the talk, evolution being used as an explanation. It's, it may be a description, but it's not an explanation. And uh, Chesterton's views on science are very eloquently explained in his book, Orthodoxy, where he explains what a scientific law is. But his, his principal objection to evolution is that uh, Darwinism was used interchangeably with evolution, and Darwinism is something different from evolution, and Darwinism is something that actually no scientists embrace anymore either. But unfortunately, our society embraces the philosophy of Darwinism, the idea that things are always going to get better, and that progress itself is an ideal, even though we don't identify what we're progressing towards. And you have this term progressive without uh, a statement of a goal. So that's, that's the, the, the great danger of the philosophy of Darwinism. We have a, a question coming in online from Anne, uh, who's from Oceanside, California, but watching with her family in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. 
Um, she says, is there any hope uh, in getting Chesterton's writings in high school and college literature and philosophy courses, or is he too politically incorrect? Well, as Chesterton says, hope means hoping when things are hopeless, or it is no virtue at all. So, of course, there's hope. Of course, there's hope. But it has to be done at the local level, and it has to be, uh, it has to be done in such a way that... Um, it can't be a top-down solution. That's, that's, that's the whole point. It, it happens with, when a teacher starts introducing uh, Chesterton into a, into a curriculum. It's, it's been done in secular schools. Here's a real great irony. There is actually a Chesterton essay in the Common Core. So one did sneak in there. Someone said, oh, Chesterton, important essays. We should, probably should include one of his essays. They picked a real obscure one, but it is a Chesterton essay, so... Who knows? There's hope for the world. There's always hope. Always hope. Um, in your book, uh, The Complete Thinker, you have a chapter called East and West. And uh, speaking of Common Core, there's a school in San Diego, I believe, that has introduced a pilot program of yoga for children. And uh, if you read about it, they've decided that if it can be proven that this is beneficial, and no doubt they will, they plan to take it nationwide. And, I, and when I think of nationwide these days, I think of Common Core standards and curriculum. And I'd like you to make a comment, please, about how uh, bad that would be for America's children. Well, I mean, Chester's point in, that I make in that chapter is that in Western culture, when we, when we reject Western culture, the natural thing we do is we go east. Those are the two options. There's east and west. There's Western culture, which is Greek and Roman philosophy and Hebrew the Hebrew God, that connected in Bethlehem and became Christianity in the Catholic Church. That's what formed Western culture. When we reject Western culture, we go to the only other option there is, which is the paganism of the East, which is really essentially what pre-Christian West was. Uh, you know, pa paganism is, is the pre-Christian condition. The good thing about paganism is it ends with Christianity. <laughs> Just, just to clarify, he's not talking about Eastern Christianity like Byzantine, <laughs> Melkite, or anything like that. That was a good clarification. <laughs> oh, okay. Dale, um, as a fellow convert, I'm always interested in hearing conversion stories because we all have our own. Aside from Chesterton, what was it that browbeat you, if, speaking for myself, browbeat me, maybe you, into the church? Well, uh, Chesterton did most of the work, and he, he really answered most of my questions before I had even articulated them. I realized I was suddenly on dangerous ground one day when I was no longer objecting to certain things about the Catholic Church. He, he says there are three stages to conversion. The first stage is you decide you're going to be fair to the Catholic Church, but there is no being fair to the Catholic Church. Either you're for it or you're against it. And as soon as you stop being against it, you really start being for it. No one is neutral about the Catholic Church. So I already found myself in that, without even me being aware of it, all of a sudden there I was rooting for the Catholic Church. I said, okay, well, where did this come from? <laughs> and, uh, and then the second stage, discovering the Catholic Church, just learning all the things that you didn't know about it. And he says it's like being in a foreign country with all these exotic animals and butterflies that you didn't know existed and you're just taking it all in. So this is really great. And there's no commitment, so you can leave anytime you want. <laughs> and, uh, and for me, discovering the Catholic Church was the Church Fathers. That's what I did. And, uh, and then the third stage, running away from the Catholic Church. <laughs> because after your head has been convinced, all your intellectual objections are gone, then it becomes an act of the will, and you have to find some way to not become Catholic. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. Christopher Hitchings had many negative things to say about faith and religion. Did he have anything significant to say about Chesterton? Christopher Hitchings' last published writings on this earth was an essay about G.K. Chesterton. So he was wrestling with G.K. Chesterton on his way out. And he was reviewing uh, 
Ian Carr's monumental biography of Chesterton. It's about that thick and a uh, fellow Englishman who wrote it. And it's an amazing exercise in avoiding the point. But I'll tell you, he had to have been thinking about it. Dale, um, Chesterton was certainly no stranger to wit and laughter. Um, what is Chesterton's understanding of a joke and, and how is the incarnation tied into the, the greatest joke ever told? What? <laughs> the essence of a joke is intellectual detachment. It's, it's being able to stand back and laugh at something because you recognize an incoherency or a, or a disconnection, and that's why we laugh at something. And Chesterton, the master of paradox, is always pointing out where things seem contradictory, where they're in conflict, or where they're disconnected. And, uh, but it, it usually has to do with this, this conflict of, of two, different, two different forces, two different uh, um, things that shouldn't go together. Uh, that's, we, we laugh at, we laugh at when, when two very different things are suddenly going together, like an elephant wearing a tutu or something like that, right? <laughs> it, the, the inherent contradiction of thing. Well, the, the idea of God becoming a man is the ultimate contradiction. And so, we, we, intellectually, it, it does seem kind of crazy that, that God is suddenly a crying baby and uh, that God needs, you know, needs to be fed and, and needs to be held by his mother. We, we, we just we think that's, that's crazy if we stand back and purely look at it intellectually. But the balance is you can't be purely detached. You have to have the compassion that goes with that. So your humor is something that only happens in the head. And uh, in order to, to be human, we have to combine what happens in the head with what happens in the heart. And that's the balance that makes us human and what makes us sane. Thank oh. you very much, Mr. Alquist. Thank yeah. you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.